0: this time we'll have our second message, our sermon for today, from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Setting Our Minds on the Hope That Awaits Us. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. Welcome to the last day of Feast of Unleavened Bread here on a Friday. Our neighbors out here probably think that we uh, are coming a day early, Got got the day wrong, they're so used to us watching us. Come here every Saturday, but uh, I really love that song. I appreciate the worship band. Uh, it's a powerful song, and 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 what God has done for us. And you know, we commemorated that just a week ago with the the Passover service, uh, where we partook of the symbols, right? The, the symbols of the blood and the 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 body of Christ, the unblemished lamb that was slain for us. And then we went into this feast of tab or not feast tabernacle. Excuse me, feast of unleavened bread. Excuse me. Uh, And we went through this physical symbolism uh, of the, the spiritual metaphor, of course, of us putting sin out of our lives. And of course, even though today is the last day of unleavened bread, we know that that feast of unleavened bread, that unleavened concept, that metaphor that's supposed to be a reality and really is a reality when God looks at us because of what Christ has done for us, we're supposed to carry on this feast through the journey of our life. But if you're like me, if you have a brain that sometimes gets easily distracted, as a young child was one of the many in the 80s that was diagnosed with the also often diagnosed ADHD uh, mental attention deficit disorder basically. You forget easy. We're forgetful people, right? And I can't tell you how many times, and fellas, you probably can relate to this one where my wife, just something as mundane as going to the store and buying something like a back of ice or maybe some salad or whatever that we might need for something and I get there and I start listening to a song on the radio and I start looking at the dash and I'm like, man, I'm about low on gas, I need to fill up. And then a friend calls and I start having a conversation. And all of a sudden, I'm arriving back home with a frustrated wife that I didn't even get what set me off on the journey in the first place. Maybe you can relate to that. I do it at work all the time. I leave my office intending to go do something. Four or five people stop to talk to me about different things, and all of a sudden, 30 minutes goes by, and I've forgotten what I've intended to do, and it didn't get done, of course. It's not hard to understand why. As the creator of the universe, the God that we have, why we need these days, these markers in time, these moads, these appointed times to continually remind us and nudge us, of course. And to keep us on track to the hope that is in us and what God is doing us and bringing us through this plan of His of salvation. As I was trying to come up with a topic for this last day of Unleavened Bread, last week we were here doing the Super Sabbath weekend and I was talking to Mr. Landon Capps and we were discussing... Uh, you know, I was telling him some different ideas that I had, and maybe some scriptures, some passages that I wanted to go to, and we started talking about this idea of getting lazy spiritually. And it's so easy to do in this life of distractions, in this world. You know, we go through that Passover season, and we heard it in the first message, and we learn about what Christ has done for us, that unleavened life that we can have through Him, and the grace and the mercy... That God has on all of us. And how what had to happen for that grace and mercy to be bestowed upon us. Was of course his sacrifice. Him being in our stead. When we rightfully deserved the death penalty. He took it upon himself. To do exactly what that song just talked about. To put the final enemy to death. Death becomes The final victim of its own sting. But in the process, of course, life happens. We heard about some examples about unleavened bread. and We go about our daily lives, and I have an example I'll I'll get to just a little bit later. We go through this life, and the Scriptures are full of these warnings. These warnings and these encouragements, these echoes of being watchful to not being lulled to sleep, to not becoming spiritually lazy. The very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we have these seven churches. And out of the seven, only two of them were found being faithful. Continuing in the faith the way that God intended them to continue. And we have these other five. And I just was reading... In this Nelson study Bible that we got as teenagers back in the nineties that I still use. It's the old friend of mine. I, I just you know, I use so many different translations, but I was just looking at that passage or those passages in Revelation, and it had this little table and it listed all of the different churches in chapter two and three of Revelation and the criticisms, and I'll just paraphrase the church of Ephesus. The criticism was that their love for Christ was no longer fervent at the church of pergamos it was said that they tolerated immorality idolatry and heresies thyatira they tolerated the cult of idolatry and immorality the church of sardis described as a dead church it's pretty pretty serious language and of course the church at laodicea a church that has become so indifferent and has allowed themselves to become lukewarm. So this message today that I'm trying to bring to you, it's not about church eras, it's not about prophecy or about how we can categorize different churches to see, you know, which one fits, you know, the Sardis category or the Philadelphia category or the Laodicea category. Rather, it's meant to be a personal reflection and an encouragement for all of us to personally be careful, watchful and on guard. And not allowing ourselves to fall into the trappings of some of the characteristics of these churches. It's meant to be a personal reflection. The inspiration of this message is from 1 Peter, verse 13 through 16. Let's just go ahead and read that, and then I'll kind of explain my focus. 1 Peter, the first chapter, verse 13 through 16. And just to kind of give you some background, Peter opens up this letter and talks about the blessing that they have. In being born anew, being begotten, new individuals that have been brought into the fold of the the salvation that is available through Christ. The graces of God being bestowed upon them. But in verse 13, Peter says this. He says, therefore, based upon all of these things that you just heard. He goes into kind of like an encouragement, an admonishment, and somewhat of a warning. He says, gird up the loins of your mind." Be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so the overarching theme of this message, as Peter tells us in this first verse... The second part of verse 14 here is to make sure, make sure that we have our focus solely grounded and anchored in the hope that is, and that awaits us. And make sure that our activity, our behavior, our minds demonstrate that hope. I have three points today. My first one, stay alert and prepare our minds for action. But to understand this, because the first verse that we're looking at, Therefore, go up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To understand that first phrase, we have to understand a little bit about the cultural background of the day. The literal words that Peter writes, a lot of the modern translations don't say this. They say, get your minds ready for action. And that's kind of the interpretation of what Peter is meaning by this. Because what Peter is referring to, is he's referring to that common idea, that common saying, that figure of speech, gird up your loins. That was so common in the Middle East. We see it throughout all the Bible. You see, in these days, as many of us probably already know, the common attire was these long robes. Oftentimes, these robes will go all the way down to someone's ankles. And so for us, gird up the loins of your mind, that's some strange terminology. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But the people that were reading this letter, it would have made a lot of sense. Because they probably would have been reading this letter while they themselves were wearing this type of clothing. And so whenever an individual needed to do some sort of action, the common thing they would do is that they would take up the excess cloth, the excess robe, and they would gird it, they would tuck it into their belt. Because without doing that, you're not going to be very agile. You're not going to be very quick. You're not going to be able to do strenuous work. You're not probably going to be able to fight in battle and run. And so what we have here is this example that Peter is giving us, and he's applying it to our minds. The idea of girding up your loins was equivalent, probably the best equivalency that we have in our modern era, is rolling up your shirt sleeves. Which signifies, get ready for action. Get busy. Let's get to work. Peter's using this idea in relation to the Greek word, mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's a Greek word that is dianoia. And it can refer to a person's thoughts, intentions, their intellect, or their understanding. And so with their newfound hope, this, this, this church, these, these Christians that Peter's writing to, their hope in Christ and their enlightenment to the ways of God of the universe, Peter is admonishing them to tuck away the excesses of this world. Those excesses that can bog us down and the mind down and distract them from their new goal, the crown that awaits them and salvation. The full realization of the grace of God in our inheritance. And that's what we're looking forward to. This, this feast of, of unleavened bread and that Passover, it makes possible that future hope which we have not. Fully realized yet. I like the way that 1 John 3 verse 2 sums up this idea of the full revelation or realization of God's grace. And we can go to many different scriptures. But 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And so Peter, to strengthen this idea of girding up the loins of your mind, he also uses this other word, this word that's a little bit more familiar to us, this word sober. And we're familiar with this word. Most of us probably associate this word sober from abstaining from being intoxicated by either drugs or alcohol. To be sober in our idea, or not to be sober rather, is to be under the influence of some sort of mind-altering substance. Such substances, of course, would inhibit us to be able to clearly see, be able to clearly think, and it would even physically inhibit our abilities as it affects our fine motor skills. Of course, we know that the Bible warns us about the ideas of excessive alcohol usage or excess in anything. But what Peter is getting to is probably not just completely... Uh, it, he's not getting to just focusing on alcohol. It's much more broader than that. He uses this word sober, which is actually a word that means being alert, vigilant, or circumspect. He is reminding of us the many distractions. The distractions that life can bring at us, that can easily lull us into spiritual distraction and inhibit Of course, our spiritual alertness. Slumbering around because of the the, the cares of this world. Maybe you can relate to this example. We just talked about this at the beginning of our services in Matt's sermonette. Every year, it never fails. It comes up. Those examples. Maybe from year to year, they're not exactly the same. But those examples pop up where we're, you know, keeping this Feast of Unleavened Bread, and outside of the first day and the last day, the first and seventh, we go about our normal lives, our routines, we go to work. And we don't do this all the time, so it's easy as we're working to get distracted by things. You're at work and someone offers you a donut. That happened to me just yesterday. I was actually on my game yesterday, so not to toot my horn or anything. But why do we forget? It's because that's how we're wired, unfortunately. We're forgetful. We get distracted. We have things going on in our lives. You're at the gas station. You're hungry. Quick trip. Big, beefy hot dogs with fresh buns, right? I know a lot of you... Gluten-free people probably don't like me talking about that as you don't get to partake in that anymore. But you forget. The distractions of life get you off track. I think it's a perfect metaphor. Of course, we can use that metaphor in many different ways. But it's a perfect metaphor of how easily it is if we don't gird the loins of our mind. If we're not sober, if we're not alert, if we're not circumspect and vigilant. How easy it is to get Off our focus, that focus on the hope that we are waiting on. In reflecting on Peter's words and trying to think of some examples that I could bring to us, I came to this parable. It's not often something I've read before. I mean, I've read it, but I've never really preached on it that I can remember. You've got to remember these parables have so many different variations. In this particular one, I don't recall necessarily preaching on one similar to this but it's in mark the 13th chapter let's go ahead and turn there and it's known as the keeper of the door the keeper of the door verse 33 of mark 13 says take heed and watch and pray for you do not know when the time is it is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch Verse 35, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. And of course, in this parable here, Jesus is discussing this idea of his second coming. And emphasizing all throughout the passages was that nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody. But he gives an illustration of what we left here on this earth while we're waiting for that master to return to be doing. Watching. You have these different characters in this parable. You have the owner of the house who's also known as the master... And he tells them that he's going off. He's not telling them where he's going. There's no way to gauge well how, how far away is he going. How, how long will it be before he gets back? They don't know that. And these servants, they're given their duties. And the duties are to, of course, do the chores of the master. But one in particular really important duty. To watch over the door. To watch over the door. And it's interesting, you know, they don't have some of the modern technologies that we have. Some of you parents might have those apps like, you know, Life360. You ever heard of that before? Life360 is like an app you can put on your, your child's phone or anyone's phone. It doesn't have to be your child. And you can track where they are. And people do this for safety reasons. If something was to ever happened, they can look at their phone and see, okay, this is where they are. And, you know, I, I know, you know, parents are making sure that they're, you know, they can, I think they can actually see how fast they're driving in their vehicle. They didn't have anything like this. They couldn't look at Life 360 and says, well, the master's four hours away. We've got four hours to hang out and chill. Because in their minds, if these individuals say, man, he's taking forever. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to relax. I'm going to take a break. They couldn't calculate how much time they had until he returned. And the whole point of the story, of course, is faithfulness. Faithfulness at all times. Faithfulness at all times. If they weren't, they ran the risk of the master returning and finding them sleeping on the job of being the watchman. That last phrase, what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. And this word watch has a very similar meaning to that of the idea of sober. It means to be watchful, attentive, Vigilant and circumspect. And there's no wonder that there's so many passages that we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, from Paul and, of course, from Peter. Ephesians the 6, verse 18, that refer to this idea of being sober, being alert, not being asleep. Ephesians 6, verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. For all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6. Therefore let us not sleep. As others do. But let us watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. 1 Peter. This same letter. At the very end of this letter. Peter says this in verse 8 of chapter 5. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil. Walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so, let's go to Matthew the 13th chapter. There's another parable that I think that we can learn from, and it's a very popular parable. It's the parable of the sower in Matthew the 13th chapter. And so, we're given this example of these four different kinds of soil, or or ground, rather. And really, we know the interpretation is that Jesus is talking about four different types of people and in verse three of Matthew 13 we see then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, "Behold a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them, some seed fell by the stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root They withered, verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we see that Jesus gives this parable, and then later the, the disciples are like, Man, you're talking in parables. We don't even know what you're talking about. Explain this to us. And Jesus actually provides them the interpretation. And we see these four different types of ground that these seeds fell on. One of them was by the wayside on the road. The result was birds came and devoured them. Of course, Jesus later tells us the interpretation was these are individuals because of a lack of understanding fell away. Mark chapter 4, the actual uh, corresponding account of this parable says that when they hear... Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. The second one was the stony ground. And of course the result was because of a lack of depth. There wasn't a lot of earth for the root to take hold. And because of that, whenever the sun came up, they burned away. It scorched them. Jesus gives us the interpretation. Because of a lack of depth caused by a weak root. Resulting in the person stumbling when such things as tribulation or persecution arose. The third one, thorny ground. It says that the seed that fell upon the thorny ground were choked. They were choked. The interpretation was the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, resulting in a becoming unfruitful. And last but not least was the good ground. And of course, the good ground... Where the seed fell, yielded crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now the reason I brought this parable to us is because most of the time, and historically, and it's probably the best way to interpret it, is to understand the different types of people. And why maybe when they hear the word of God, they don't accept it. But the question we have to ask ourselves is that can we look at this parable and can it still be instructive to us as believers? And can we still look at it and ask ourselves, have I become one like that's fallen on thorny, thorny ground? Or stony places? Or the wayside? Have I let my life, have I been so lulled to sleep that when I hear the word of God, it's not producing the hundredfold, the sixtyfold, the thirtyfold as it should. Do the cares of this world, the tribulation and things like that get us off track? Are we allowing the Word of God to transform us like it should? Or are we allowing because of things such as sin, distractions creep in, not being alert, not being watchful, not having sober minds? My second main point, and I kind of touched upon this a few weeks ago a little bit, is don't turn back to Egypt. Don't turn back to Egypt. Verse 14 of 1 Peter says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. And Peter here, he encourages us to instead of being led by our pleasures, by our desires, by our lusts, to control them. He encourages us to control them not to live as we lived before of course before we were converted now we all have different paths you know, we all have different things that we walked before we were converted we still to this day have different life circumstances what you're going through is not what i'm going through and vice versa but all of us can probably think back to that time before we were baptized, to that time before we really accepted this way of life, before we accepted that unblemished lamb and that sacrifice and repented to God, all of us can probably think back to that and those carnal inclinations that we indulged in, that we were carried about by our own lusts, our own God, our God was ourself. And still to this day, we have to contend with not just the flesh, right? But as Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2, the world. It's interesting when we read that passage where it says, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. One of the only times that that word conforming is used is in Romans, the 12th chapter, talking about not conforming yourself to the world. Not conforming yourself to the world. Just to read that. Romans the 12th chapter verse 1 through 2. Very popular passage that we've went to many times before. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. wholly acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? As I was looking at First Peter, and I was, one of my very first, uh, when I was first baptized, I bought, uh, I think I was doing like a study on the, the general epistles. And so the general epistles is James all the way to, to, to Jude, right? Okay, those seven, as they call them, general. They're, they're, They don't belong to one author, but they have many different authors. You know, Peter, Jude, James, uh, John. And William Barclay, for many, many years, he wrote a commentary, maybe you've heard of him before, called the New Testament. Uh, It's it's not the New Testament for everyone. Uh, That's what N.T. Wright uh, has produced. But it's pretty much like the forerunner to N.T. Wright's commentary series. And I was just reading his... Uh, words about the world in which Peter uh, was writing to, those individuals that were receiving his letter, what the world was like. And he wrote uh, this quote that I wanted to kind of bring to you. The world of Christianity was born into a world dominated by lusts and characterized by futility. And I paraphrase that part. But this quote, which is very interesting, he says, Its basic trouble was that it was not going anywhere. The Roman poet Catullus writes to his Lesbia pleading for the delights of love. He pleads with her to seize the moment with its fleeting joys. Suns can rise and set again, but once our brief light is dead, there is nothing left but one long night from which we never shall awake. If people were to die like dogs, why should they live like? Why shouldn't they live like dogs? Life was futile. Business with a few brief years in light of the sun and then an eternal nothingness. There was nothing to live for and nothing to die for. Life is always futile when there is nothing on the other side of death. And this is just a general idea of this world that Peter was writing to because he was primarily writing, of course, to Gentiles, to individuals that had come out of the pagan world And all the different synchronistic ideas. And all the different religious ideas. And these ideas of gods. And most of them not even really caring about humans. But humans just being for the amusement of themselves. The audience that Peter was writing to. Would have understood the world that they lived in. The world that they lived in. We don't exactly know. Specifically. It doesn't list in this passage that we just read. Verse 14. The types of sins. That he's referring to. But I think we can all agree. That we still live in an age. Where we see these activities. Envies. Things like malice. Deceit. Hypocrisy. Self-indulgence. All things that Peter will eventually write about in this letter. Those characteristics are all around us. The flesh in us. The carnality in us. The human nature in us. longs sometimes to want to go back to those. Those devices. There's no short of lewdness and abominable behaviors, of course, in 2022. We can read about the history of what the biblical individuals' worlds were like and the sin. But we can't think that our society is any better because it's not. And we see this daily. We see it in news. We see it in politics. We see it in movies. We see it in social media. It's all Years ago in 2004, you know, every time we take the Passover, my first Passover was 2005, but I was baptized the year before that in 2004. And it was actually a big part of my baptism was the Passover service. And what I mean by that, a big part of my influence, because in 2004, I was in a state of life where I was curious. I'd grown up in this church, grown up around Christianity, went to churches with other friends, did Bible studies, but I never, never had a true, genuine personal conviction. And that year, I remember as the women went out to wash their feet. We have that 20-minute period And I just started reading through the gospel accounts, probably Matthew, and the account of Jesus being led to his arrest and his eventual crucifixion. And strangely enough, when I was doing that, I was remembering the movie that had just came out the winter before, like in February, The Passion of the Christ. And so I was, of course, in my mind, someone who had been around the Bible, read parts of it, never really read the story through and understood it and had a strong grasp on it. But this was the first time that I really was focused. And I became so interested in this name that I had heard my entire life. And I gave lip service to, but it wasn't real depth conviction. And so that Prompted me to start really studying, and in conjunction to that, Landon Caps, also we were about the same age, one year apart, was doing his own journey, kind of coming to his own interest in his own way, in this own, you know, calling and 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 I guess you would say leading to ask questions about God and the Bible and 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 what it was all about, and we got baptized that year on Pentecost. But right before we were baptized, and I don't know if Landon was with me whenever this happened or not, but Steve Andrews did the baptism counseling. And I can be honest with you, I don't really remember anything, any scripture per se, that was read to me except one. Luke, the ninth chapter, verse 62. I'll never forget these words of Jesus. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll never forget those words. It's just, it it like just shocked me. I mean, it just immediately, that's just a, I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow up in an agricultural world, but I, I understood what it meant. I understood because Steve was explaining to me the seriousness of the commitment that I was getting ready to undertake. And so let's go there to Luke the ninth chapter. I want to pick it up in Luke 9. I want to just read this story. Luke 9, verse 58. Those words are couched into this individual coming to Jesus and basically saying, I want to follow you. Verse 58 of chapter 9 in Luke, it says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this is response to this man coming to him and says, I want to follow you in verse 57. Verse 59, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, the person Jesus said, follow me to. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said also, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll never forget those words. They made a big impact on me. Going back to that time of my life, that baptism... I remember for years before, I would think to myself, and it reminds me of this story. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, I really need to get serious about God. You know, although I wasn't committed in the faith that I was reared in, I felt like it was true. I felt like it was not the faith that was the problem, but it was myself, which, come to find out, is true. It was me. And so I would always tell myself, I really need to get, you know, right with God. I really need to get serious about this. But I was living my life. I was young, barely 20 years old. I had just graduated from high school. And I remember that when I was in high school, if you knew me, so much of my life was wrapped up in sports. And so every year you go from August to May, you have this, you know, this, this organized life, right, okay? You have a summer off, August comes around, football starts, practice, games, then wrestling, then off-season. May comes around, you get two more months off before you do it again. Well, that finally ended. I'm an adult. I'm 19 years old, going to college, going to local college, community college, still living with mom and dad. I don't have that routine anymore. That activity that I put so much stock in, that what I thought was really self-fulfilling, it was not there anymore. And so looking back, looking back at this idea of me thinking of, you know, I really need to get right with God, I remember what in the back of my head, it's hard to verbalize it when you're when it's happening cuz it sounds so bad. But subconsciously I thought I'm young, I have plenty of time. I got things that I want to do right now. It brings me to a new perspective, and I think you would probably maybe can relate to this, of the passage that we read in Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, verse 9, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That was a deceiving heart. I deceived myself, I lied to myself, and made myself believe that, you know what, later on I'll get right with God. Right now I'm having fun, and I, I, there's things I want to do, and I know that if I get right with God, I'll probably have to sacrifice those things. And I thought to myself, of course, those things were somehow going to be fulfilling, and, until I realized one day that, you know what, All of those things, that void that I experienced from leaving high school and going to college and not playing sports anymore, all of those things, anything that I put my heart into was going to leave me just like that. The time will come, it will run its course, and the void will return. All of those things. A few weeks ago, and this is the, 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 the crux of this main point, Don't turn back to Egypt. A few weeks ago, the week before Passover, I talked about this idea of desiring and longing to go back to Egypt. I was giving a message on First Thessalonians, but we had Passover the next week, and so in light of First Peter verse fourteen, and where Peter tells us not to go after the former lusts when we lived in our ignorance, I think it's timeful for us to go back and look at Numbers the fourteen chapter. Because there was a time that Israel, as they're in this wilderness, and it's about time to take on the promised land. And so Israel and Moses, uh, they sent 12 spies that were, of course, their job was to send out, you know, uh, the the land, or to to spy out the land. Give us a report. And they come back, and all of them, but two, Caleb and Joshua, they bring back this report, Moses, this ain't happening. There's no way we can do this. These people are huge. They're mighty in number. There's no way that we're going to be able to, a bunch of people messing around in the desert, have no establishment, just been wandering around, going to be able to go against this mighty established people group and take over their land. Numbers 14, verse 1 through 4 says this, So all the congregation lift up their voices and cried, And the people wept that night. And what they wept about was that report that the ten brought back. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And even though many of them saw many of the miracles, they saw the pillar by by night, the cloud by day, they received the manna, they did not have faith that God would bring them through and allow them to establish themselves in that promised land. And it required, or it resulted in them having this desire in their hearts to turn back and to go back to the familiar. In this case, we have to ask the question in this context: what was it that made them do this? It was probably a mixture of things, but the overarching idea here, the overarching thing was their lack in belief. They saw these people, they heard, they 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 thought physically. They thought that the whole issue was wrapped up in a physical manner. If someone stronger than you physically has more resources, there's no way that you can overcome them. Despite all of the stories, all of the experiences that they had. They had actually convinced themselves, going back to that idea of a carnal and deceitful heart. They had convinced themselves... That following after God was more empty, was futile, was useless. And convinced themselves that to save their lives, they needed to return to the bondage they had been brought out of. My third and last main point, strive to leave holy. Peter says this, but, in reference to verse 14, don't go after the former lusts as you did when you were in ignorance, but, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The reasoning of Peter here is simple. We are to be holy because we have been converted and made children of God. We are the descendants. We are God's offspring. And as His offspring we are to now pattern ourselves after His character, which is holy. In simple terms, this idea of holy means to be separate. Separate from the common. In the midst of all the gods of the universe, all the gods of paganism, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, was distinct and different characteristics beyond anything out there we have a holy god and god is inviting us and expecting and commanding us to live a life that has that same characteristic of he himself as his children this is actually a quote from Leviticus the 19th chapter verse 2 where we read speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, you shall be holy, for I the Lord, your God, am holy. And of course, if you go back to Leviticus, you learn about all the ins and outs, the purity, the rituals, of course, that point towards the holiness of God and their purposes. You learn about a a people group that actually has a law that requires farmers not to farm and harvest the entire field as love for neighbor. For those strangers passing by that might need a little bit. You learn about a system of taking care of those vulnerable in society. I like this quote from this Nelson study Bible. I've never seen it before. On Leviticus 19, it says, In the Old Testament and New Testament, Holiness means the life of godliness, especially as manifested in social holiness. It originates from God and emerges in our relationship with parents and children. It affects the way we worship and treat the poor, the stranger, a neighbor, women, animals, the soil, and the aged. Leviticus is a great book to look at. If you can get past some of the difficulty, and you can look to see the intent that God has. The expectation of holiness, but even further than that, the demonstration of how very different the God of the Bible is in comparison to the other gods of the universe. And all that we do as children of God, we are to be holy, distinct, set apart. Not in pride, of course, not holier than now, than Not in haughtiness. Not puffed up. As this feast talks about. We go back to Paul and Steve spoke about last week. You are puffed up. That's not how we're supposed to be holy. In a manner that demonstrates the character of God. And in doing so, we can allow that character to transform our life. As I conclude, I want to present us with some practical steps that we can take. You know, I always thought that, you know, you have to have these metaphorical ideas, and I don't mean I I thought this in terms of how I I verbalize it, but this, you know, as I've gotten a little older, I've started to realize that you know, we form habits as humans. It's taken me 37 years to realize that, right? I have a lot of bad ones. But there are things that we can do if we're intentional to really set good habits in our life that help safeguard us from being lulled to sleep, from not being sober, to having hearts that sometimes have inclinations that want to return back to Egypt. To not focusing on holiness. Some of these are going to sound really. Really stereotypical cliche. But ask yourself. You may be really good at these things. I'll be honest with you. I have not been. There's times I am. And there's times that I let cares of the world. My busy schedule get in the way. But if we implement these things. And we make them a habit. Then we can make some of those things that Peter's telling us to do a little bit easier to to grasp, a little bit easier to follow. Number one, again, these are really simple, pray daily. Sounds stereotypical, right? Cliché, pray daily. Not real helpful. But ask yourself, do you pray daily? Does every day that you're awake, do you sit down and do you spend time with God and you verbally talk to Him? Maybe it's mentally, verbally, but you know what I mean. Read God's Word daily. Do you read the Scriptures every day? A few weeks ago, we had Jeff Henderson come, and he gave a couple messages, and he described this time that he, since the feast, he was motivated to do this new thing called Coffee with God, I think is what he called it. And of course, he lives in, you know, the rough, the rough terrain of the beach there in California. Where he can go outside and he can, you know, on a Saturday morning, walk down to the beach, pray to God, drink a cup of coffee. And he says that he's made it a habit. This is where the whole idea of being intentional comes in. There's nothing wrong with getting a piece of paper and writing down, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to say I'm going to do it. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it in my phone. And I'm going to stick to this schedule. And I'm going to stick to this schedule until it becomes such a habit that it's like putting a seatbelt on when I get in the car. Or it's like brushing my teeth at night whenever I'm getting ready to go to bed. Be intentional. Another one. Physically write down a goal that you have to serve one another. All of us have different talents. All of us have different spiritual gifts. But one thing's for sure, if the Bible's true, it tells us that every one of us has a gift. Identify that gift and take advantage of it. Let God transform your life through your gift as you help transform others. As we conclude this last day of unleavened bread, may it, of course, not be the last day That we strive to live an unleavened life. Let us continue to put away that old leaven. The loins of our lives and minds that trip us up. That excess stuff that sometimes we forget about. That keeps us from being effective in our spiritual life. And our walk with God. That intoxicates us. And makes us not as alert as we should be. Let's remove those things. And keep them removed. Let us do this so it does not lull us to sleep like a person who is intoxicated. As we conclude this day, let's make it a goal to live an unleavened life. We're going to stumble. God's grace through Christ is still going to shine. He understands we're going to trip up sometimes, but the goal is to strive for that holiness. For that unleavened. In our mind. and our actions. and our hearts. Let us take these things. And until. The count is ended at Pentecost. Let us think upon these things. Until God brings us another one of his appointed times. Markers in history. To help remind us of his plan of salvation.